You are listening to the Piedmont Church Podcast. To learn more about Piedmont Church, including our gathering times in Macon, you can visit us online at piedmontchurch.net. Raise your hand if you remember your first job. Yes. Okay. Some of you are going to, have I had a first job yet? But uh, uh, we've all had first jobs, that, and some of them were amazing, and some of them were not so amazing. Some of our first jobs maybe were, were at home, right? And our mom or dad or somebody in our family paid us to, to cut grass or to clean gutters or, or do something. O- others maybe had a, a fast food or retail type first job. Thank you for all that you do, uh, because that was probably a doozy, right? That first job when you're 15, 16, 35, whatever it was, uh, for you, you know, flipping burgers and saying, you know, whatever you, do, you say from Chick-fil-A, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a tough job, but somebody's got to do it, so we appreciate all the food that you can get, but there's learning experiences in that fast food job, right? There's learning experiences working from home uh, with your, your folks. There's also learning experience, maybe your first jobs, maybe you went to high school, you graduated college, and you got your first job in your career field, and you learned really quickly, probably, that what you thought you were going to be doing wasn't exactly what you ended up doing, and so through all of our first job experiences, no matter the setting, there's, there's kind of this learning curve that happens, right? And I feel like the learning curve can either be uh, heightened or it can be decreased by the type of boss that you had. I, I remember my, my first job, my boss was the type of boss that said, here you go, learn how to swim. That's kind of what they did to me. They just kind of threw me out because uh, I don't call working for my parents a first job because I never got paid, so that was just slavery. Um, <laughs> but uh, just kidding. That was just what I owed my parents because they, you know, gave me bread and water. So, um, but my, my first job, I, I can remember, it was my boss was not the kind that kind of nurtured me and poured into me and said, hey, don't do this because this is going to make it really hard. But aren't those the good bosses, the, the, the ones who kind of, hey, let me teach you a couple things. Here's the areas that I failed or some of the places that I saw difficulty in. And I'm going to tell you these things so that you won't fail or you'll be less likely to fail. These are the kind of bosses that we want. No matter our first job, we want the kind of boss that wants to see us win. A kind of boss that pours into us. Well, let me ask you this. What if we could have a boss, or maybe a different word, a mentor like that for our relationship with Jesus? What, what if we could have somebody in our life who, who really cared about us and they wanted to see us succeed, and so they told us, hey, here's some of the areas that I failed in. Here's some of the areas that I struggled in, and I'm telling you this so that when this problem arises in your life, because it's likely going to, here's how I handled it, and maybe you can handle it differently. I, I was sitting in a room uh, about six, seven months ago with a, a room full of pastors. I think it was 15 of us. And the question uh, of discipleship was brought up, and, and somebody asked this room full of pastors, said, how many of you have been discipled? How many of you have been discipled? Now, there's about 15 pastors in the room. I was the only one who raised my hand. I was the only pastor in that room who raised my hand. Think, think about that. I mean, th- these are guys who, who likely got their education in, in church ministry. They, they went through the process. They, they, they probably uh, 
went through church for a long time. Most, I was think I was probably the youngest man in the room at this point. And these are guys who devoted their life to Jesus, devoted their life to the church. And yet 14 out of 15 pastors had never been discipled. And I'm sure they had all sorts of reasons. I, I think if I went around this room and I said, hey, how many of you have ever been discipled? I, I think there might be a similar answer. Now, there might be some gray areas in some places, and, and you might have answers like, well, you know, I think my parents kind of did X, Y, Z. And there, there might be some others that go, well, let's really define discipleship. Like, what, is this, what does this mean completely? But I think as a whole, I think if we looked at this idea of discipleship, I, I would wager that a large majority of us have never been discipled. Well, I don't know if you know this or not, but going back to that first question of what if we could have somebody who could model this, this Jesus life for us, Jesus has given us the answer to this. It is in the, the idea of discipleship. He's laid it out, both in his life, I think he's laid it out in the entire 66 books of the Bible, but specifically Matthew 28, he tells us, hey, don't just go and get people saved. He says, go do what? Go and make disciples. See, I think what we hear and what, what pastors often do is we say, hey, let's just go and get people saved, right? Isn't that what we feel like we, we say a lot? Like, hey, come walk down an aisle, come give us your church membership, get baptized, make sure you tithe, make sure you serve. But we don't ever talk about developing as a Christian. We don't ever talk, talk about somebody pouring into our lives. And then we get to this place in life and we start asking the question of, well, why, why doesn't this happen? And maybe we get older and we go, why aren't we doing it? And here's the reality is what we've never seen modeled, we rarely do. What we've never seen modeled, we rarely do. So when I think about back to this pastor conversation, 14 out of 15 pastors never had a disciple uh, never had someone pouring into their life, modeling for them what it means to make other disciples in Christ. So what likely they're going to do is something that looks a little different than the biblical model of discipleship. I'm not saying that they're not biblical. I'm not saying they're not great men of the Lord. I'm not, I'm not saying that somehow that they're, they're failing in all things. I'm saying they're not going to really do this picture of discipleship because they've never had somebody walk them through the process of it. In 2023, our church is going to grow because you are going to make disciples. I said it. Our church is going to grow because you are going to make disciples. Not because I'm going to preach good messages, although hopefully they are. Not because our worship team is going to get slain in the spirit and the music's going to be amazing right? Although, I hope that happens. I don't think it's because we're going to offer great programs or our next-gen team's just going to really knock one out of the park. Growth will happen because you will answer the call of Jesus on your life as a Christ follower, and you will make disciples. I'm not going to have a bunch of them, I'm going to have my select few. You're going to have your select few. And what's going to happen is, imagine in this room right now, I'm probably looking at 105, 110 people. Imagine if all of us focused on one person for a year. Just one. Let's give ourselves a 50% fail rate. Right? 
So if all of us in this room right now focused on one person and 50% of us just, that person didn't disciple, they didn't come to faith in Christ, they, they didn't take a next step, but the other 50% did, what all of a sudden happens to the room? It grows. What happens to the kingdom of God? It grows. What happens to 50 people's lives? They go from death to life in Christ because you stepped up and said, I'm going to do this for one person. So what I want us to do this morning is I want us to lean in to what I think the gospel of Luke is leading us and presenting in front of us, this idea of discipleship. And I want to look through it through a very specific lens, the lens of spiritual parenting. Now, spiritual parenting is kind of this obscure language, but we can see it throughout several places in Scripture. One of them is Peter actually writing his letter in 1 Peter in chapter 5. He refers to Mark as his son in the faith. Paul refers to Timothy as his son in the faith in 1 Timothy. Jesus models spiritual parenting time and time again with his disciples. And so discipleship is a lot like parenting, but discipleship is spiritual parenting. And what he's called each and every one of us who are in Christ, meaning those who have put their faith in Jesus and said, I follow Jesus, he's called you to be a spiritual parent for someone else. If you're an actual physical parent, he's called you to be a physical parent, a natural parent to your kids, as well as a spiritual parent. But your discipleship process doesn't stop there. I know, we're putting more on our tables, parents. He's called you to still find others. I heard David Platt say one time, one of the best methods of discipleship is having children. Let that sink in for a moment, right? I, I don't disagree with him, but I don't think that we need to stop at, oh, let's, Amy, let's have some more kids, and that's how we're going to disciple, right? I don't want any more kids. I could take some spiritual kids. I'm good with my two. So today and over the coming weeks, what I want to do is I want to give you some tools on how to help you do this. I want to I I help you do this. And, and my first tool is what you're all feeling, I think. Here it is. First tool, don't accept this. You will never feel ready. Right? Don't accept the idea that I'm not ready. I'm not ready. Accept this. You will never feel ready. Know that. You will never feel ready. Well, how, how do you, how, how, can, how can we kind of deal with this? Where, where, where do you pull this truth out of Scripture? Well, let's, let's look at the physical parent who is also entrusted as being a spiritual parent over the Lord Jesus. Mary is a 13-year-old girl given a son, not just any son, the best son, right? Like, she never had to spank Jesus. Think about that. Some of you go, I don't spank my kids now. Well, your kids might need to spank it. But <laughs> here's the thing. She was given an amazing son, but yet was still entrusted to parent him. And we'll talk about this in a couple of weeks, but specifically, I want you to think about a 13-year-old person, 13-year-old woman, saying, hey, you are going to be given the Messiah as a virgin to parent and her response in Luke chapter 1, verse 30, 38 is, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me 
according to your word. Essentially, like, here I am, Lord, send me, kind of thing. And here she responds to this great call with, there's no way I'm ready, but I'm taking a step in faith. There's, I mean, think about, for parents in the room, think about when you went to the hospital to give birth to your first child, or wherever that was, car seat, I don't know, like, probably have some crazy stories in here. And think about, uh, Amy and I experienced this, they, they give me my son Micah, we've been in the hospital for two or three days, and they're like, okay, it's time to check out and go home, and I'm like, I didn't even pass a class for this. Like, what? What makes, like, why can I take them home? I'm not ready for this. And, I mean, so far, they're still alive, right? He's doing, a, you know, he's breathing, as far as I know, as long as Next Gen team's doing a good job, y'all are all freaking out right now. I never felt ready to be a parent, but here's what I know. God entrusted me with that, and he wouldn't entrust me with something that I would fail at. He saw it through, and he does that for us in discipleship. You will never feel ready, but God will make you ready, and it's time to take a step. To our main text, Luke chapter 2, verse 21. If y'all will stand in the honor of reading God's word with me. So this is after the birth of the Christ. It says, And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time had came for the purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. You may be seated. So the first tool in discipleship, spiritual parenting, is to know that you will never feel ready. Right? You just, you won't, you won't get there. But once you've done it, you're going to be ready. Like once you've gone through the process, it's going to happen. The second tool, we're going to see modeled here by physical parents, Joseph and Mary, but they do it for us spiritually as well. Um, is to be devout. Be devout. So right here, in the very first verse, in, in verse 21, it says, and at the end of the day, eight days, he was circumcised. So right here, this, this kind of begins what's called, in, in Jewish terms, the purification process. So for, for a Jewish family after the birth, there was this ritual process for, for both the cleansing purposes and the spiritual purposes for the family to be, to be cleansed and to, to kind of set their, their, their family on the right course to walk with God. And the, the process of circumcision was, was one that set God's people apart from the surrounding nations. And you can go back and read this in, in Leviticus chapter 12, but it was given first in Abraham and then kind of resounded again through Moses. But basically it was this covenant set up between God and the people to say that you are a people who, a, who are set apart. Uh, Peter says a, a royal priesthood, a, a nation. And so in order to, to, to make that fully physical, I want you to circumcise your boys. And so the, the process of purification began with the circumcision of the boys. Now, this is in part an external thing to show an internal movement of God. 
right? The covenant is an internal movement of God. The circumcision is set up in the Old Testament as an external, you know, kind of, uh, I guess, uh, announcement of that internal covenant. Now, we need to be clear. As we move in Scripture, I think sometimes we connect circumcision, which is the external expression of an internal thing, and we move it closely to baptism. But uh, as much baptism is an external expression of an internal move of God, what you never see in the New Testament is you never once see a, a baby baptized. So here's the big difference between circumcision and baptism. Circumcision is a, a decision made by the parents for the child. Baptism is a decision made by the person who has now given their life to Jesus. So you have this external expression of something internally happening right here in Scripture throughout the Old Testament and to the New Testament. And why this is important is because Joseph and Mary, from the very beginning of Jesus' birth, say, we are going to be a people of God. We are going to be a family who follows after the Lord. We are going to be devout. Now, I know in today's world to say, I am a devout, whatever, seems like a bad thing to say. But if you really look at the word devout, it's not a bad thing to say. To say that I am a devout Christ follower is in some ways, I think, redundant. Because I think Jesus would look at us and say, if you would say you are a Christ follower, that would mean that you are devout. Right? We shouldn't have to say that I am a devout Christ follower. Because the book of Revelation says that you can either be, uh, you, you will not be lukewarm. You will either be hot or you will be cold. And so you are either A, a Christ follower, or B, not a Christ follower. And so in order for us to, to begin this process of discipleship and, and, and kind of diving in to what God has for us, is we need to understand that we are called to be hot. We are called to be devout followers of Jesus. We are called to kind of express all the things that he's called us to do in our life. We, we, we call them core values here at the church. We call them core values. And so the, the way, this is a little dusty, or maybe it doesn't look dusty to y'all. Anyway, so what we have here, these, these core values lead us to love God love people, and invest in his kingdom. This is all planned, so you don't have to freak out about what's going on over there, okay? So what we call our people to do, and what we think scripture has called us to do as Christ followers, in order to be devout, I'll just let them get set in, because y'all's eyes are all over the place. Here we go. All right. What he's called us to do, hey, take a step to your left. I need this stage. Thanks, appreciate it. I'll hold it up here. He's called us, first and foremost, we would say to be present, right? To, to, I got a little glare. Sorry if I hit you. Sorry, I'll just do this. So he's called us to be present. So as a Christ follower, you were not just saved from death to life. You were saved from no family to a family. Like you, you were brought into the family of God. And so what we need to do as the people of God is to be present with each other. 
That's, that's like kind of the first thing that you're born into as a Christ follower is you're given salvation, but you're, you're, you're then given a people. Because you can't be a holy nation by yourself. I don't know if you knew that or not. You, you can't. So the first thing is going to be present. The second thing he calls you to do is he calls you to give. Now, oh, he goes, have my money. Well, yes, but it's, it's, it's more than money. It's give of yourself. It's give of your, I had a pastor say one time, your time, talents, treasures, and testimony, right? Alliteration. He was a Baptist. So that, that's, that's what he, he's called us to give everything. If a brother or a sister is in need, he's called us to step up and, and to, to meet the need, to help. There, there was a brother and sister in our church recently that, that went through some damage in their home, and one of our community groups stepped up and financially helped their family. That's what the church is called to do. When, when, when we hear about a, a need in the, the church building, we are called to give to it, right? So we're, we're called to be present. We're called to give. We're called to connect. So we use these core values in kind of a dinner table setting when we talk about this as Piedmont 101 and uh, kind of getting a seat at the table. I love this one for the dinner table thing because it makes perfect sense. Imagine going to a dinner table meeting. You know, maybe you're out to dinner with some friends or family or whatever, and everybody's present, right? They all got their money to give their, you know, pay their bills, but then you never connect. You sit there, and you don't talk at all. Some of you are like, I went to that dinner last week. But <clears throat> that's a crappy dinner. Like, that's a terrible experience. Hey, let's go out to dinner. Like, it's that first-time couple. I don't know, married folks, you've probably went on, like, a double date before, and you've gone, and at the end of the night, you look back at your spouse like, yeah, we're never doing that again. It's because you didn't connect, it was boring, it was terrible, or maybe somebody talked too much and they were trying to overconnect. But either way, we are called to connect with each other. Number four, serve. We are called to serve each other, but we're also then called to go out and serve in the community. Churches left the building, other things like that. Making disciples isn't just about what you did in this room, it's about your everyday life. So it's your workplace, at your kid's school. That club you do, that pickleball team you're on, how are you looking to, to serve other people and make known the name of Jesus? The last one, and I think this one's just kind of you know, plain Jane. I think you see it throughout Scripture over and over and over again. He says, do all things unto him. Do it with excellence. I tell our staff all the time, there's a lot of things we can do. Let's do less things well better than, rather than more things poorly. Let's do things with excellence. And so when, when you look at core values for us, and we talk about being devout, an easy first step, in case you're going, ah, I don't know what to do in 2023, here's an easy first step. Plug in to one of those right there. Like if you're looking for something to do inside the walls, to go, hey, I want to be a devout Christian, we need you right here. The world needs you too, and we're going to get to that in just a second. But we need you here. We have, a, we have four rooms right now filled with children that need more people pouring into their life. Tonight, we're, we're going to launch youth ministry for the, for the winter and spring semester. They need people who are going to let them ask ridiculously hard questions, who are going to watch them fail at times. And if you don't think your teenager fails, you don't watch hard enough. And they need someone in their life who's going to have grace and mercy, who's also not their parent at that moment, to say, you know what, it's okay. Jesus forgives you. I forgive you. Let's learn to walk forward. How can we take the next step? 
How can we get rid of whatever things are in our life? Give this team a round of applause. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Joseph and Mary modeled being devout by first and foremost getting Jesus circumcised. But the second thing they do, and all this seems like super nuanced when you're just reading the text. You could just look over it very quickly. But they actually name him Jesus. Think about that. Yeah, of course they named him Jesus. Gabriel told him to. Well, they could have named him a lot of things. Joseph could have been like, look, bro, this is my child now. I'm going to name him whatever I want to. Like, Mary, you were a virgin. I hear you. She, you know, he's mine. So I'm going to name him something else. But no, what did they do? They named him after the name that Gabriel told him to. And in this, through all of this process, Joseph and Mary, they weren't showing their deep knowledge and extraordinary wisdom. I think sometimes when we hear devout, that's what we think, right? I'm not devout because I don't attain the knowledge that I'm supposed to have. I'm not as intellectual. I don't know the scriptures. I can't theologically have this conversation. Are Joseph and Mary displaying theological depth here? No. You know what they're displaying? That they're present. They're displaying that they're giving, they're serving, they're doing an excellence, they're connecting. They are displaying their devoted love for God. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven 37 says that we should love the Lord God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. To be devout is simply just say, God, I'm all in for you. So to make disciples, you're never going to feel ready, and that's okay. But the second thing that you have to do is you have to be in it. Like, you have to be committed. Making a disciple, pouring your life into someone else, isn't going to be the easiest process. Because you're inviting someone else in to see your mess. A good disciple isn't someone who's like, hey, you know what? Look how well I do this. Come watch. You know what a great disciple maker is? I fail a lot. But here's what God has taken me through those failures. Let me teach them to you. So we need to model this for other people. Being devout isn't about being overly intelligent. It's about being present to serve. My last point, point number three. It isn't about what you have. Making disciples isn't about what you have. So we look at the first couple of tools that I gave you, right? And the first one we talked about, we don't feel ready. Well, we've debunked that you don't actually need to be ready or to feel it because you won't feel ready. You, are, you will be ready. When God has called you to do it, you will be ready. The second one, we're talking about being devout. We, 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 and sometimes we go, I don't know if I have enough time to, to know all the things, to do all the things, to be that person. And the reality is, you probably don't think you have enough time, but being devout is just setting priorities. Like, if you're a Christ follower, the priority is to follow Jesus, first and foremost. In your parenting, in your marriage, in your job, whatever it is, is to follow Jesus. And so to be devout means to just set him at the center of everything, not top on a list, but at the center, and everything else is a ripple effect off of him. Now this third one. It isn't about what you have. Sometimes we get to this place and we go, I don't know if I can disciple someone because I don't know enough. I, I don't have what they need. I, I don't have enough to bring to the table. I haven't walked as a Christ follower long enough. I've got too many things in my past. If they knew this about me, then they would never want me to pour into them. And I love this picture that we get from Joseph and Mary, from Jesus. 
the creator of the world, not, not only comes to this earth and leaves his throne and takes on the humble form of a baby and comes into a teenager's womb, but he came to an impoverished family. In Luke chapter 2, that, that last verse that we read, verse 24, it says, in verse 23, it talks about every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. 24, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. What Luke is showing us here, if you go back to that Leviticus 12 passage, he highlights it this way. He says that specifically because they were actually supposed to give a lamb. But they didn't have the money for a lamb. And so the text in Leviticus 12 says, hey, if you don't have enough money, give this. It, 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 to me, it's almost a similar picture of, of the woman pouring out the perfume on the feet of Jesus. It was like an annual wage for her to do this. And she pours the sacrifice onto the feet of Jesus. And here we see Joseph and Mary being chosen by God in their poverty to parent the Messiah of the world. We have a tendency to look down on people who are impoverished. We have a tendency to look at people who are impoverished and in poverty to go, that's your fault. You're not good enough. I don't know if y'all know this, but poverty is not a sin. I heard a pastor say this. He said, poverty is not a sin. Poverty is not God's disapproval. Poverty does not prevent a person from worshiping God. Poverty does not necessarily doom a person to poverty, poverty forever. Poverty does not excuse unrighteousness. Po poverty is not shameful in and of itself. Poverty is a cross that God entrusts to some people for a time. See, it wasn't about what Joseph and Mary had that made them the parents that God wanted them to be. It wasn't that they had a, a safe house and all the things to, to supply the Messiah with. No, they, they, they were actually short on most of it, right? I mean, he, was, he wasn't even born in a place that you'd want to be born in. And then when they go through the, the ritual process of following after him, they don't even have the money to do the, the full thing. They had to go like plan B. And I think sometimes when we're going through the discipleship process and we're talking about making disciples, we've seen maybe how others have, have done it. We go, I, man, I, I can't do this. I can't do that. Look, I, I've been there. But it's not about what you have. It's just about you being present. It's about you showing up. Some of the greatest gifts I've ever been given in my life is someone just showing up for me in a moment. It wasn't somebody showing up to me with a gift, although we appreciate gifts, right? Sometimes the greatest gift, the greatest thing that someone needs isn't for what you bring to the table. It's just you. And I know that there's a lot to that statement because some of us have self-worth issues. But all that, in my opinion, is mooted because of what Jesus did on the cross for you.
died for you, even while you were still a sinner, even when you denied him, he died for you. And in order for us to take next steps and to see the kingdom of God grow, we need to know that he died for our neighbor. He died for our coworker. He died for our family member, that friend, that person in our life. And what he's called us to do, Romans 10 says, he's called us to go and tell them. To go and tell them. It's not about what you have. Because he brought it all. You don't have to feel ready because God will see you through it. You don't have to know it all. You just got to be present. You don't have to have anything because Jesus has it all. So become less so that he can become more. That's kind of the first process in making disciples is knowing that it isn't about you. We talked about it last month as I closed in, our, in November, two months ago, excuse me, in our vision nights. See, I don't make things grow. You don't make things grow. God makes things grow. But he's called us to throw seeds and pour water. Throw seeds and pour water. You know what you're in control of? The seeds that you throw and the water you pour. And when it grows, to God be the glory. Takes us out of it. I I meant what I said. Our church is going to grow because you are going to take a step of faith this year. You listening online later, you are going to take a step in faith. And you're going to make a disciple this year. I believe it. I know it. So let's do it together. Next week, we're going to talk about some tangible ways to do this. We're going to talk about a great move of God that's going to happen in our city in March. I I encourage you to be here. I encourage you to bring somebody with you because God's going to move with us next week. I think he's already moved tonight. I mean, this morning, excuse me. So what are you going to do? You're going to just let him move in your heart and then walk out those doors and, hey, what's for lunch? Are you going to ponder on what God's doing? take the next step so that we can move people closer to Jesus in 2023. Let me pray. God, I thank you for what you continually do in this church, what you continue to do in our hearts. I pray that this year we will be a people who are in love with you. A, pe- a people who are, are, are constantly looking to make your name known regardless of the situations we find ourselves in, regardless of the feelings that we have, but God, you'll give us the boldness, you'll give us the right words to say at the right place, you'll give us the opportunities to make your name known. God, I know that many of us in this room have never been discipled, and so we rarely do what we've never seen, but God, we've seen it in you. And so God, build in us a a lifestyle of discipleship. 
that church isn't just about coming together and singing a few songs and hearing a sermon and then leaving, but the church is a people of God who have come to make your name known. We gather so we can glorify you in praise and in worship. We can sit underneath the teaching so we can be filled with the Spirit and we can move from this place and we can scatter into this world and like you've called us in Romans 10 to proclaim the gospel for your glory and your fame so that we will see every tribe and every tongue and every people profess the name of Jesus as Lord and Savior. We are answering that call right now. Move in this church. Move in this city. Move in our partners in Scotland and Guatemala. Move in the other churches in our city. God, help us all as your people to be a set-apart nation declaring the glory of God. It's all these things I pray and God's people said.